Right, I think I'll stand so I can uh, roughly point at this. Um, so basically, I should start off and follow the principle of the guidelines and say this is the most important thing you are going to hear in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, so there are three perspectives that I would bring to these kind of issues as a historian, and actually a historian who's worked on both issues of energy um, over long periods of time and more recently on kind of conservation and quite a lot with um, various kind of practitioner partners in conservation. So the three things that kind of spring to mind that a historian can bring to this sort of discussion. And one, where does the proposed change fit into the kind of trajectory that society or a particular way of doing things such as the energy regime is on? Is this, does the proposed policy fit into something that appears plausible that might actually happen within a specified period of time? One thing we tend to know as historians that most of the time, and particularly actually with things like large-scale things like energy regime, change happens relatively slowly, although sometimes it happens quickly. Um, but generally, there are kind of pacing and scale issues. So I want to look at trajectory. A second kind of very broad way of thinking about it is to look at the origins of the policy frameworks we use now and sometimes looking at analogies from the past of similar kinds of situations. I'm going to look more at the kind of origins of current um, conservation policy in the brief comments I'm going to take now. But sometimes, of course, we can find fairly clear analogies that we don't expect to be repeated, but that can give us some sort of sense of the likelihood of the consequences of actions, sometimes of unintended um, actions. And then, actually, finally, I want to come to something to do with memory, which can play quite an important role in people's framing of policy, but isn't talked about that much, even actually, I think, within history and policy. And that is, where do the publics more generally, as well as politicians, fit events into their own historical memory? How does their own perception of the past, whether that's actually accurate or not, shape how they feel about things going on now and what is important to them actually as part of their history that feeds into issues of identity and belonging. So firstly, the trajectory. We're talking about fracking. So I'm just kind of assuming that people know what fracking is, roughly speaking. Um, fracking is a way onshore of extracting previously difficult to get at reserves of natural gas. How important is gas to our energy regime? Well, it is very important. It used to, briefly, it was actually the most important single energy input into our energy regime. It shrunk a bit back down in recent years, but it's still about a third of total consumption. Now, during the 70s and 80s, this built up largely coming from resources from the North Sea, but now the larger share of gas consumed within the UK is imported. Um, I can't remember, it's probably about 55-45 is the kind of share between domestically produced gas from the North Sea and imports. Its main current uses, and this is something that you can, a long-term perspective is required really to get a sense of, domestic heating, that's the biggest single use. That's not something that's that easy to change because people have already bought into the infrastructure that delivers that form of heating to their houses. Okay, so that's likely to remain fairly consistent over time. People don't like to have their properties messed with that much or incur expense around it. Electricity generation is the second biggest use. Now, it's relatively easy to switch away from gas and electricity generation, but currently the quickest alternatives you could move over to would be coal and oil. 
which emit more carbon into the atmosphere. Renewable capacity in this country is still very small. And finally, industrial heat processes. Again, it's relatively easy to switch, but you can only really do so towards more carbon-intensive fuel, and that's in fact even more resistant to change than electricity generation. It's not easy to find alternatives there to the use of um, gas or liquid or solid fuels. An issue with something like gas is clearly energy security and where you're getting it from. Where do the main imports come from? Currently, Norway is the dominant supplier of imported gas and a smaller, although growing, share from Qatar in the Gulf. Now, one thing to say, looking at these questions historically, is since the Second World War, there's a long history of energy forecasting and also estimates of reserves in the ground. How much is there? Is it worth investing on a large scale in a particular type of energy source? How long is it actually going to last relative to our demand? What's our demand going to be like in the future? Now, I've actually worked with these mostly in a North American context, but also done it on a world and a UK basis. And one thing to say is estimates of reserves, and even more so what's actually recoverable out of the ground, are extremely variable. And in the long run, they're extraordinarily unreliable. Virtually all historic energy forecasts are wrong for one reason or another, where it's of reserves or of consumption. Everybody says, ah, yes, but in the past, they didn't have the techniques we have it to do it today. That's what everybody said in the past as well. Everybody thinks they can do it better and it's going to be right this time. They're all wrong, viewed in the long term. And that's also the case with price as well. If you're projecting the price of what the energy regime is going to be like in 20 or 50 years' time, the honest historical answer, in the sense that we go back to, look, did people get it right or develop the right techniques, is nobody knew in the past. Everybody got it wrong. It's quite likely that's also actually going to be the case now. It's particularly unfortunate when you read... Um, Estimates of Future Energy Prices published in September 1973. That's always a great source of amusement, um, not knowing that the price of oil was going to shoot through the roof in about two weeks' time. Um, how big is the UK as part of the international market for gas? Is about 7%. What this means is even actually finding substantial supply of extra gas within the UK in an integrated European network of gas supply is not going to make much difference to the price of gas anyway. UK reserves are very unlikely to be able to influence that. On the other hand, the energy industry is a significant industry. It accounts for 10% of total investment in the UK economy and has done for a long period of time. And so there may be a strong incentive to maintain the kind of skills associated with that. Now, switching rather away from energy policy, um, a few points about conservation policy, the sorts of landscapes and areas that are protected that something like fracking development might affect or people might think it affects. We have a wide range of these kind of protected areas and policies in place, mostly designed in the late 1940s um, and managed partly by various bodies that changed over time. The biggest one is now called Natural England, but it's changed. It's basically the inheritor of an organization set up in 1949. So areas of outstanding natural beauty, that's already a clue that those sort of areas weren't set up on the basis of kind of pure scientific advice. 
and on ecological principles, but with a kind of sense that these areas are nice and we want to preserve them for various reasons. Sites of special scientific interest. Again, they tend to be designated more along scientific principles, but they change actually over time according to the scientist who's involved and what they think happens to be important. And basically, virtually all of these operate as planning restrictions. They just make it harder for you to change the environment that's there. They're not any kind of positive ecological planning in the sense they're trying to generate a new type of ecology or shift things over time. Why was that strategy adopted in the late 40s? Not necessarily simply because people thought that was the best thing to do, predominantly because it was cheap. Because doing anything else would require developing a large body to decide on policy and make people alter things for which you would then have to compensate particularly the agricultural interest, and it would be very expensive. So the reason that conservation policy developed on the basis of basically protecting very, very small limited areas that have since expanded over time was basically because they're cheap and it could be done through gradually building up a system of voluntary consent. That's really the principle that it's operated over time. So it's not part of some sort of integrated view of how the ecology of the country should be or isn't based on a system of consistent values either. And it's sought to be consensual over time. Now, where I would then come in a kind of historical perspective, something like offsetting, you destroy one type of environment, you replace it with something else elsewhere as part of the scheme, is a complete break in many ways with the principles of previous conservation policy because conservation policy wasn't actually based on establishing a clear value for the things that you were conserving. And it was built around a principle of consent built up over time with particular landowners that they would manage land in a particular way. If you do something like offsetting, you have to persuade other people to start changing the way that they are currently managing their land. And of course, it would require costs because for the things that are offset to have value, you would have to ensure that they continue to be there for a long period of time. There would have to be costs of upkeep and there would be extensive costs of monitoring, which in many ways the whole framework of conservation policy has been designed to avoid. Finally, the issue of memory. And this is something I've come across particularly because I was involved, I've, for, for a long time I've actually worked on the, the history of woodlands and perception of trees and woodlands in the country, but I was particularly involved with the independent panel on uh, forests and woodlands that was set up um, after the proposal of the coalition government to privatise the, the um, National Forest Estate, which actually composes about 18% of English and Welsh woodlands in 2010, which they ended up abandoning. So one of the issues I was looking at particularly then is why do people value woodlands? And also, why was there a very strong reaction against that proposed privatisation that caused its abandonment that was largely unanticipated by the people who came up with the policy? And I want to make a few observations on this. Firstly, ancient woodlands is part of your scenario. Ancient woodland is a very strong brand these days. It absolutely has the moral high ground in debates. How would anyone want to destroy something such as an ancient woodland? Actually, the reliability of the identification of ancient woodlands is very poor. Really, 
really very unreliable indeed. In a sense, for good reasons, because the Index of Ancient Woodlands was put together very quickly by people who didn't have time to do the work on the ground. So this actually means that there are probably far more woodlands identified as ancient, which basically means they've been continuously wooded since 1600, than are really there. So if you have a proper ancient woodland, they're actually much more scarce than we think they are. But these woodlands are not valuable as such because they're woods. They're value, valuable precisely because they have been in that form for a very long period of time. And particularly, actually, not so much that they've been woodland for time, but the trees in them are old. This is why they have a very specific and highly biodiverse ecological value. Now, what do people think about trees generally? Well, trees are the kind of thing, actually, if you hold an opinion poll and say, should we cut a tree down, no one will ever say yes. It's also true, as I know Deborah Mattinson, that some people know here, will always say, if you ask people, is it a good idea to privatise anything, they will always say no. Trees get cut down and things get privatised. So that doesn't necessarily translate into political action. But why are trees important to people? Well, actually, in many ways, the ecological value of trees is not something that comes to the fore in discussions of their protection. And people often don't actually value trees in general. They value particular trees that they have associations with. Now, also, one of the important connections between history and trees is trees are seen, unsurprisingly, as living things that live much longer than we do, as embodiments of a connection with the longer term and with a kind of intergenerational sense of what's right and handing something down to the future. This is clearly something that's very important that comes out in people's discussion of trees. They're seen to give character to landscapes and communities. So they're much more fiercely protected, in fact, when they're named, when they're, where they're places that people regularly walk and, in fact, have access to. So another important issue around woodlands is people actually having access to it, not simply that it's there. And there's a very strong sense that trees express our history. They embody a sense that we come from somewhere. Um, and it's a kind of respect for the heritage of a particular community or, indeed, the nation of a whole. And all of these things have really been kind of present in discussions over trees since the 17th century. It's a kind of genre that's extremely repetitive and absolutely came to the fore again in the 2010 forest debate. And what's interesting, actually, about the way those discussions play out is very often the narrative that's attached to the trees has very little to do with the actual history of the trees people are talking about. So people will talk about places like Thetford Forest, quite near where I live, in the East Anglian Brecklands, which was largely created since the 1920s, as a timber reserve, just in case we got cut off by submarines again, um, in exactly the same way that they talk about the Forest of Dean or the New Forest, which actually are areas that have been historically largely covered with trees for hundreds of years. So people actually very quickly build up these kind of associations with wooded environments. And it was really that, those sort of things, actually that don't come up in sociological surveys of what, why do you like trees? because they're always cast in a very general thing, those actually seem to have been the prime motivators to get people to act and campaign around them. And this is absolutely historically true as well. They care not so much about trees, although some of the associations that come into wider environmental debates, like you know, we're deforesting the rainforest, we shouldn't deforest at home, come in in a minor way, but really they care about particular trees. So as I say, trees are actually rather ill-defended as trees, but they're very fiercely defended as values. So what you don't want to get into with your policy proposal is making your policy versus 
trees that people care about, then you have an issue. Equally, if your proposal is, we don't have to worry about all of these things because we can offset and create the values of trees elsewhere, then clearly the new trees have none of the associations that the old ones have. So that's unlikely to have a very favorable reception. So those are my comments.